And so that brings us to chapter 15, and I want to pick up reading in verse 1. I invite you, if you're able this morning, to stand with me in reverence to God's Word as we begin reading in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they've asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You may be seated. A number of years ago for a class I was taking, I wrote a paper that looked at all of the events that happened from Jesus' arrest to his crucifixion. And it looked at how Throughout this entire episode, throughout these entire events that led to the death of Christ, there were different groups that got together, and within that group, people were manipulated to the point where they called for something to happen to Jesus that he most certainly did not deserve. We see that effect happening in his trial before the religious council in chapter 14. There is this idea that the group is being influenced heavily by their leader who is feeding them false information. And now, here in chapter 15, we find that once again, Pilate is he's influenced by this group of people that ultimately have no control over him, and yet he is influenced by them to the point of putting Jesus to death. Pilate had faced a difficult reign there in this region. He is uh, often having to deal with people who are very unhappy with him being in this part of the world. They do not like his leadership. And anytime something happens, Pilate is always having to worry that at some point he is going to have to answer to Rome and to the emperor for what he does. And he doesn't want to cause a problem. He wants to keep the peace. He wants everyone to get along okay. And he's willing to do really whatever it takes to make sure that that happens. He's willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that he keeps the peace and he doesn't get in trouble with the people above him. And so it's with that thought in the back of his head 
that he is confronted with the religious leaders of Jerusalem who bring to him Jesus who they have already found guilty and who they seek to condemn to death. He's got all of this on his mind. He's got all of this going on when he is confronted with the possibility of putting this man to death, this man who he really can't ultimately find anything wrong with. I want us to think this morning about the choice that we have when it comes to how we live out our faith in our culture. We have a choice to make. We can follow after Christ. We can follow after His direction. We can seek to keep His commands. Or we can listen to the voices of our community and our culture that attempt to drive us in a different direction. What we see here is groups of people who are confronted with that decision and we see the results of the decision that they make. Jesus is confronted with choices. The religious leaders are, and so is Pilate. They all have choices that they can make, and their choices ultimately will provide direction to their life. And the same is true for us. We are confronted, bombarded every day with a number of choices that we must make when it comes to our relationship with Christ. We saw at the end of chapter 14, Peter confronted with those choices. The people in this crowd are asking him, aren't you with him? You know him. You're a part of his group. You came with him. He's confronted with a choice to make. Does he keep his word to Christ and say, yes, yes, I I know him. Yes, I follow him. Yes, I am one of his disciples. Or ultimately, the choice he makes is the opposite. No, I do not know Christ. I do not know him. I I do not know who he is. I am not one of his followers. You and I are confronted with these choices. And I want us to see as we go through this text this morning, what happens when we make those choices. Or what happens as a result of the choices that we make. First, we we see in verses 1 through 5, we see the choice that Jesus is confronted with and the choice that he makes. Now, if you read this and you had no context, if you read chapter 15 and you, you didn't know anything except everything that happens after, and you didn't know anything about Jesus or who he was, you might say as you read verses 1 through 5 that Jesus is making a choice that results in his own death. If you look at this, you may say there's something wrong with Jesus. Why in the world, when he has an opportunity with a man who is apparently sympathetic to his cause in Pilate, why is it that he would make the choice to act the way he does? Why would he answer the questions the way he does? He has the opportunity to get himself out of this. At least it seems that way. He's having this conversation with Pilate. Pilate seems to be leaning in a way where he doesn't think Jesus has really done anything wrong. As a matter of fact, he he says that later. He he points that out to them in verse 14, if we went that far ahead. He says, why, what evil has he done? I mean, he's shocked. They want to kill him at this point. By the end of this passage of Scripture, the the crowd wants to kill Jesus, and, and Pilate can't find anything that he's done wrong. 
And so we might read this out of context and out of our knowledge about who Jesus is and think, well, there's, there's something wrong with Jesus. He, he, he must have some type of mental disorder because he, he seems to want to die. Well, why? Why do you want to do that? Now, of course, we understand this passage in the context of all of Mark's gospel, in the context of the New Testament, in the context of the whole Bible together. And so we can look at this and realize it's not that Jesus is wanting to choose death, but rather what we see in these five verses is that Jesus chooses life over his own security. Jesus chooses life over his own security. Security. Look what happens. We, we have the religious leaders and they come and mourning has come. So they've already had their meeting. They've already said, hey, he's worthy of death because he has committed blasphemy against God back in chapter 14. And so as soon as it is morning, they gather back together and the chief priests hold a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. So they get back together and so they bind Jesus up and they lead him away, and they deliver him to Pilate. Pilate is the governing authority there. He's the one in charge. And so we see from this that the religious leaders, they don't have the authority to kill Jesus like they want to. They would really love it if they could just take Jesus out and kill him themselves and be done with it. But they don't have that authority. They are under the authority of Pilate. So ultimately, he is going to be responsible for what happens. He's going to be responsible for making the decision of what happens to Jesus. And so they take him to this secular authority, this godless man, and they want him to administer justice. They're accusing Jesus of this religious crime, but they want it to be carried out by the secular government. This should raise a red flag for us immediately as Christians and especially as Baptists. We definitely do not want to be dependent upon the government. We we don't want them making the decisions for us. It's one of the reasons the New Testament talks about Christians aren't allowed to sue each other. Why? Well, because you don't want some judge who is godless, who doesn't respect God doesn't respect Christ, isn't living under the authority of the gospel to make decisions for you. As Christians, we're called to administer those things ourselves. We're called to take care of those things ourselves. The Bible forbids it. That's why if you look at many of these organizations, Christians' organizations, when you come into an agreement with them, there's a uh, part of the agreement is you can't sue each other. You have to go to Christian mediation. Why? Because that's, that's what the Bible says. You don't want to submit to the authority of the government on that. But that's what they do. They can't handle this themselves because ultimately they want Jesus to die and they've not been given that authority. So they go and they turn him over to a secular leader. They put their faith in the government, which they don't trust, by the way. These religious leaders don't like Pilate. They don't like who he is. They don't like what he stands for. They don't like that they are being occupied by Rome. But they want to they work everything out. They think of the most practical solution. Friends, that's what way too many Christians are doing today. Christians want to rely on the government for one thing and not for the other. I'm always amazed at the number of cases that go before the Supreme Court. 
And if the Supreme Court rules one way, so many evangelical leaders love the Supreme Court. And the next week, they rule a different way, and now they're a bunch of morons. So one week, they're great, and the next week, they're godless, pagan, whatevers. The problem is we shouldn't be relying on them at all. These religious leaders were supposed to have a connection with God. They were supposed to be close to Him and in fellowship with Him, and they should have been able to rely on Him to fix their problem, but instead they want to go rely on the government. So Jesus is turned over to Pilate. And Pilate is the one who is responsible for justice. Look in verses 2, 3, and 4. Pilate asked him, so Jesus has been brought to him, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. So immediately upon this, now the religious leaders are still there, the chief priest, verse 3, accused him of many things. So they lay out their whole list of charges. Now, they start out, or Pilate starts out, with the question about being king of the Jews. Why? Because that would be asserting that he has authority. If you come and you say, hey, I'm king of the Jews, well, no, the Roman government gets to decide who's the king of the Jews. And so that's what they go with. Now, remember, go back. What was the charge? The charge was blasphemy. The charge that he was, he was saying something about God that was untrue, making a claim about God that was not his to make. But when they get here to the secular authority, it's why well, he's the king of the Jews. And so then they throw in all the other things. Hey, he said this, and he said that, and he's done this, and he's led this rebellion, and he's led them this way, and, and this, that, and the other. All things we can assume from this, all things that would entice Pilate to find him guilty. So Pilate hears all of that, and he says in verse 4, Again, he asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate is responsible for justice. That is the one thing that we should hope our government does. According to the Bible, a government has been set up, any government, whether it's the worst uh, dictator ever, whether it's your favorite president, government's job, according to the Bible, is to administer justice. That's why as Christians we don't retaliate against people, we don't seek after vengeance, because the government is supposed to be the one who gives justice. If you look at a criminal case, you would think it would be um, John Doe, versus whoever is accusing him, right? The person who he wronged. So if, if someone murdered someone in your family, you would think that it would say John Doe who committed the murder versus the family of the person that was killed. That's not what it says, is it? If you, if you go look at, at a legal document like that, it's not what it says. What does it say? It says John Doe versus the state of North Carolina. Or in a federal case, I assume, I'm not positive, but I assume it would say something like John Doe versus the government of the United States or the United States of America. Why? Because we understand, having a, a Judeo-Christian background in our country, that the government is responsible for justice. And so if someone wrongs you, they commit a crime against you, you don't go and face them in court, but the state goes on your behalf. 
And they go to defend you. They go to take up for you. So the prosecutor goes for the state, but the state is going on your behalf. And isn't that nice to know? Because you've already been wronged. How much worse would it be if you've, if you've been wronged and now you've got to pull together the money to get a lawyer to go and, and, and take your case to court so that you can be, uh, get justice? But that's not how it works. And so Pilate's job here, according to the Bible, according to what God has ordained with government, Pilate's job is to administer justice. Now, they shouldn't have went to him in the first place. But once they got there, and this was started, this proceedings, these proceedings in front of Pilate, it was Pilate's responsibility to administer justice. You know, as we're in an election cycle, where I'm still not convinced of any candidate's worth, I wonder, as you're looking through the things that you want in a candidate, because you've got to vote here in a few weeks. It's not that far off, right? The election's early March, correct? The primary? Is justice one of the things you seek for in a candidate? I'm not sure anymore what people seek for in a candidate. According to the polls, the worst possible candidates, I guess, is what people are looking after. Like, who's the worst? And that's who I want to vote for, apparently. But all that aside, do you think about that aspect that the Bible says that a good government or any government, God has put in place. So God has set up, put in place the government of our country. And the role of that government is justice. Now, not this social justice junk where everybody is trying to set equal, and by trying to set everybody equal, everybody has nothing. And that, that, I'm saying justice for people who are wronged. That's what the Bible says the responsibility of government is. Is that something we think of when we are thinking about who we might vote for, when we're thinking about who our elected officials should be, that we understand that they... They want to seek after justice. They want truth to prevail. When someone has legitimately been wrong, not they got their feelings hurt, but when they have been wronged, when someone commits a crime against another person, we know that this candidate will seek after justice. We should want that because it's their job. It's what God has set them up for. It's what Pilate is set up for here. That is his job, but he doesn't do it. But aren't we thankful that Jesus doesn't seek after his security, but rather he seeks after our life? Look at the verse there. Look at verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Here was Jesus' opportunity to talk his way out of this. Here was Jesus' opportunity to say, well, okay, on count one that they have made, this is, um, this is what is actually true. This is where they're lying, and here's the evidence. And on point two that they have made against me, here is the truth, here's my evidence that this is not true. Does Jesus do that? Does he, he try to work his way out of this? 
Does he try to get out of this, this thing? Is Remember, Jesus knows what is going to happen. He knows that he is only hours from his death. And this would have been the opportunity to make his case in front of a guy that seems to have at least somewhat of a sympathetic ear. But he doesn't do so. Jesus does not save himself. But in these verses, with everything against him, Jesus chooses life over security. He chooses your life. He doesn't choose his own life. He doesn't choose security so that he can be secure and okay and taken care of. No, he chooses your life. Because without him going to the cross to die, you and I would have no security. Without Jesus being willing to submit himself unto death, you and I would only have death to look forward to. We would have no life. We would have no hope. But Jesus chooses our life in this passage and in countless others. He chooses our lives over his security. I don't know the number of options Jesus would have had here to have saved himself. But he doesn't choose any of them. So when the choice was to be made between our life and his security, he chooses our life. So the question for us in the culture in which we live, when we're bombarded with these questions and bombarded with these choices, what do we decide to do? Do we pick our security over the life-giving gospel that Christ has called us to give to others? Do we choose our security over the lives of others who are dying and perishing because they do not know Christ? I would say that is where we most often fall, is it not? Do we not often choose our security, our comfort, over the life of others? You think about this, you are the ones, we are the ones who are able to go into our community and share the gospel with other people. But when we choose our security over that responsibility, it takes away that life-giving gospel from other people. A great example is what has happened in recent months with our missionaries. Hundreds and hundreds of Southern Baptist missionaries have had to come home from the places that they were serving overseas because Southern Baptist churches simply aren't giving to missions. Southern Baptist churches have chosen their own security over the lives of other people in other parts of the world who have never heard about Christ. Isn't that a sad commentary on where we are as Southern Baptists? The choice is one that we have to make. And Jesus chose to give up his life, to give up his security, so that you and I could have life everlasting with him. And we must make that choice in the way that we live. Do we choose our security? Or do we choose the lives of others? Jesus chose life. He chose ours. But he wasn't the only one making choices 
in this passage. As we move into verse 6, we see that the crowd that is gathered there also has to make a choice. Verse 6, now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. So Pilate had this tradition when, when the Passover feast came. The Passover was when God had delivered his people out of Egypt and the death angel had passed over the homes of the Hebrew people and spared their lives. And in the Egyptians, their firstborn had died. And this was the most important feast in the Jewish religion. And everyone had gathered there in Jerusalem for this. It was everyone who would have come from all over the world to be a part of this feast. And it was Pilate's custom during this feast to take one of the prisoners and release them. And we find out that the prisoner that's brought forth is a man who had been part of the rebellion. So this is someone who had already rebelled against the Roman Empire. He had been accused of murder or had committed murder during this insurrection, during this rebellion. And so he is the option. So you can tell this is a serious thing. It's not like releasing some guy who had been accused of stealing an apple in the market. This is a person who had committed murder, and yet the custom was that, that that he would release someone, release one person during this feast. And so the person that is brought forth as a possibility of being released is a man called Barabbas. And I think Pilate does this knowing that They're not going to choose this guy over Jesus. I mean, Barabbas is a a terrible guy. Barabbas is one of the reasons. you got to think, these people who are committing rebellion are one of the reasons that the Roman Empire came down harshly upon the Jewish people. Every time they tried a rebellion, every time they had an insurrection, every time they tried to combat the Roman armies, the Roman armies would come in in greater force to crush that and would cause the people to be more um, under their rule and authority. It's not like this guy's a popular guy. I mean, ultimately, 40 years after this, it's this type of attitude that Barabbas had that would cause the Roman army to come in and destroy the temple and all of Jerusalem and scatter the Jewish people out for 2,000 years. So they have a choice to make. And they choose a murderer over Jesus. And the crowd, in verse 8, came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He offers Jesus. He said, Okay, you want me to release somebody. Why don't I release Jesus? He's he's the king of the Jews. Seems to be a pretty good guy. He knows that the religious leaders are just jealous of him because he's popular. Why don't I just release Jesus? For verse 10, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. They pick a murderer. They pick a guy who has killed someone. Think about the contrast if you had Jesus and Barabbas standing side by side. One takes life while the other gives life. One is truth while the other is full of lies and rebellion. There seems to be the easiest of contrasts. 
I mean, wouldn't we? If we had standing before us, you had Charles Manson, the the serial killer, standing here, and, and beside him you had Billy Graham, the great evangelical Baptist preacher. And it's a bunch of church folks. You know, it's not the guys down on Charles Manson's cell block. It's, it's the Baptists gathered for Sunday morning worship. Hey, here's your options, guys. I'm going to let one of them go free and the other one's going back into prison. Who do you want me to pick? If you would vote for Charles Manson, I would encourage you to come at the time of invitation at the end of the service and repent. And also, we may send you to get medical treatment. But that's the option before them. That's the option before the people is to decide who they want to pick. Do they want to pick this murderer or do they want to pick this man who they have cheered? Remember, not so many days ago, he came into the city and everyone was saying, Hosanna! And yet they choose a murderer. They pick the murderer. But the chief priest, verse 11, stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So Barabbas goes free. So they pick a murderer. And that's bad enough, isn't it? They have the option to let Jesus go. They have the option to to right the wrongs that have happened. And they pick Barabbas. But that goes further than that. Well, Pilate says then in verse 12, Well, what do you want me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What do you want me to do with him? So here they have the opportunity again. Well, why don't you release him too? You know, Barabbas' cousin was out in the crowd. He's like, hey, you know, they're going to they're gonna kill my cousin. Let's, let's cheer for him. And then we'll cheer for Jesus later. You know, let's, let's cheer for, for Barabbas and we'll get him loose. And then, you know, Jesus, they're not going to do anything to him. No, that's not what happens. They cheer for Barabbas. Well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Here's their opportunity. You can make this right. What do they say? Do they say, well, you know, give him 30 days and let him loose? No, the chant goes from the crowd in verse 13 and they, sorry, in verse 12. And Pilate asked again, what, do you, what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. They have the opportunity in verse uh, 11 through 13 to, to correct this wrong. But they choose death. Jesus chose life over his security. The crowd has now chosen death over life. They chose death by picking a murderer. Now they choose death by crying out to crucify Jesus. They, they get rid of their opportunity to correct the wrongs that have been happening to Jesus. He shouldn't have been arrested in the first place. He shouldn't have been tried in the first place. He shouldn't have been beaten in the first place. He shouldn't be standing beside Pilate in the first place. And now is their opportunity to correct this wrong, and they do not do so. Even their words acknowledge they they have no cause. He says, what did he do? What, What evil has he committed? And what did they say? Did they give a list of of stuff? No. They just yell louder. 
Crucify him. Crucify him. They choose death over life. Isn't that our culture summed up in these few verses? Doesn't our culture choose death over life? And when you say anything about it, do they give an explanation? No, they just yell louder, right? When you want to talk about your faith, look at what happens in our culture when a person wants to talk about their faith. Is there a a good reason why not to? Is there some statistical analysis of why that is wrong? Is there a logical conclusion of why that is wrong? No, it's just we'll yell louder about it. See, that's that's what's interesting about our world is when, when they don't like something a believer is doing, what do they do? They run to the courts, like the Jewish leaders. They get on television. They get in the media. They try to shout down the Christian faith. They try to be a louder voice than ours or anyone who would defend us. We live in a culture of death. We live in a culture of darkness. We live in a culture of despair. And our culture operates in this mob mentality where people just kind of follow along with whatever the crowd is doing and if the crowd doesn't like something, they try to shout loud enough to get their way. And how sad that is. But even sadder is the number of Christians that go along with that. I mean, you look at this political cycle we're in, and it's all about yelling louder than the next person. There's no ideas. I mean, I'm not the political junkie I used to be. I used to live on talk radio and watching CNN and Fox News 24 hours a day and knew everything that was going on. I don't do that anymore because like, I enjoy being joyful. And if you do that, it's pretty difficult. But I've not heard one good idea yet about the mess we're in. Have you looked at your retirement lately? If you haven't since Christmas, don't look at it. Just Plan on working a few extra years to make up for the last month of your retirement. Look at our culture. Look at the death. Look at the anger people have. Have you heard anyone offer a solution? Because I haven't. Not a good one. They can say stuff. They're going to build this, or they're going to tear down this, or they're going to reform this, or repeal this, or whatever. But I've not heard any good ideas. Why? Because all they're trying to do right now is stir up the crowd to be louder than the next crowd. That Monday is the Iowa caucuses, and guess what that's about? Getting in a room full of people and shouting louder than the other guys. That's what it is. I'm so glad we don't do that. What? How, how dumb. We have ballot boxes. You can go in and vote and go home. They sit there and yell at each other. And so whoever's got the craziest supporters wins the Iowa caucuses. So Monday night, you're watching television. Somebody's going to win on both parties. And it's going to be because they're 
followers were the loudest and most obnoxious in the room full of people. That's what our culture has become. And Christians, instead of doing that, we need to follow after Christ. Instead of being in the crowd that's shouting crucify, crucify, or whatever, we need to be the ones who are leading from the gospel. This crowd chose death, and that's ultimately what this mob mentality will do. Because a mob mentality wants to lay blame on somebody, they want to yell louder than anyone else, and they want to get their way. Look at the difference. Look at the difference in this mob that is yelling, crucify, crucify him. And verse 5, but Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus' life is on the line and he stands there in humble silence. He has made his case. And yet the crowd is there. This mob mentality. With, you can just see these religious leaders weaving their way through the mob, yelling at people, getting people to cheer louder, getting people to yell for this innocent man's death. Jesus chose life and the crowd chose death. Who are we going to follow? What are we going to listen to? So it's left up to Pilate. Jesus has chosen life. The crowd has yelled for death. In verse 15, it's up to Pilate. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. He chose what was wrong to make the crowd of people happy. That's what non-believers are always going to do. I saw a video this morning, a humorous video that was comparing this one particular person's statements. And it was set up as a debate between this person and himself. And so one day he said one thing, and the next day, the debate, I mean, this this is the same guy, this is not 30 years apart, these are days apart, he says the opposite. And it was, you know, it was made to be funny, you know, he says this and says that and whatever. But isn't that how the world works? Whatever the polls say is what our leaders do, Right? Trust me, if tomorrow 75% of the American people said they would only vote for a president who was a Southern Baptist, I could get any presidential candidate I wanted to sit right here. I might could line them all up. But if next week it said that they would prefer that they all worship Satan, the next week, the little Satanist church up in Michigan or wherever it was that they did the news story on, a bunch of idiots, they would be lined up at their church, or whatever you call it, with their little statue thing up front, and they would be bound down before it. I guarantee it. There's a couple of them I'd be willing to bet money that they would do that. 
Because they're pragmatic. They just do whatever the polls say. They do whatever's popular. That's what Pilate does here. If the crowd had said, release Jesus, release Jesus, guess what? He'd have walked right out of there. He has a responsibility for justice. He has a responsibility to do what is right. And he shuns that responsibility to make the crowd happy. Friends, as Christians, that cannot be us. We have a choice of life over death. We have a choice to make in that matter. And yet so many Christians will throw out what God has said if it is no longer popular. So many Christians will throw out the the things that they once said they believed because it's no longer popular in our culture. It's no longer trendy. It's no longer cool to do so. If you live long enough, you see all of these things happen. Some of you who have been around for a while, you can remember a time where everybody went to church. You can remember a time when some of these sins that are on television every day now were never spoken of. They were never celebrated. If someone was involved in them, they were, they were looked down upon. They were, they were pushed out of, of culture. They definitely were not celebrated. You definitely would not vote for them in an election, you definitely not, would not make them a leader in your community. You would not raise them up of an example. And now it's, everything's okay. Now everything is, there's, there's, everything is normal. There is no normal. Everything is permissible. You can't judge anyone. You can't talk bad about the choices anyone makes because they're all okay. That's what the culture tells us. And yet God's Word is still telling us He has truth. He is truth. And in Him there continues to be right and wrong. And frankly... If we acknowledge that, we're making a choice toward life. And when we do not, we are making a choice toward death. And that's what's in front of us. And I feel feel sorry for everyone who comes after us because it's going to be even harder. Some of you don't have to worry about that for many more years. You get to to leave this world and go be with Jesus. But, friends, our kids and our grandkids are going to grow up in the most evil, wicked country on the face of the earth. And the choice they make is going to be a choice between life in Christ or death. And their choice for life in Christ is going to be a choice that for many of them will lead to physical death. I would have never believed when I graduated high school 13 years ago, 14 years ago, that the world would look like this now. I can't imagine how shocking it is for someone who graduated high school 40 or 50 or 60 years ago. 
And imagine what it's going to be in 40 or 50 or 60 more years. Why is it getting like that? Because, friends, Christians have not been choosing life. We can blame whatever. We can blame governments. We can blame uh, celebrities. We can blame whatever. It's, It's not a valid excuse until we start with the church and Christians have not chosen life. We have not stood for the things of God when confronted with a choice to join in with the crowd and yell, crucify him, crucify him to Jesus. What choice are you going to make? What choice are you going to take responsibility for? Are you going to stand with Christ and say, my life and my security is not what is most important. I'm going to choose life for others. I'm going to choose the message of the gospel and the truth of God's word. Or are you going to join Peter in chapter 14, join these crowds in chapter 15, and and shrink back into the background and applaud with them the attempted destruction of God? That's what the world is trying to do. They want to destroy God. They want to obliterate Him. They want to, to tear His name down. They want to tear His followers down. They want to make Him irrelevant. They want to make Him uh, only what... what Uh, strange people or or uneducated people do. That's the only people that follow God. That's what the world wants to do. Are you going to join them in that? Or are you going to stand up and say, I'm going to stand with Christ. My life is not what is most important. Being popular with my friends, being trendy with my coworkers, that's not what is most important. What is most important is Christ. What is most important it's what God has said. And that's what I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose to follow Christ. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I am thankful that we can gather here and God, we can follow you We can gather here and worship you. God, I pray that our worship would extend past this place. Our worship would extend to the choices that we make in committing ourselves to you. God, we understand that the world has become a wicked place. It's always been a wicked place since... The fall, it's always been a place of destruction and death. And God, we just are seeing it so vividly in our culture. God, it hurts our hearts to see what has happened to our community, to our, God, our nation, to the world. Because of how much sin is celebrated. How excited people are to engage in, God, all the things that you have called wrong. God, convict us where we fail you. God, forgive us where we fail you. God, help us to be people who choose life. Who shun our own security. To choose life in your gospel. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you're doing for us. We 
God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. God, I pray that you would speak to those here. God, show them areas they have chosen to follow the crowd, to follow the, the voices that are yelling crucify instead of standing with you. Committed to whatever life brings. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for all that you're doing for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning as we um, get ready to close the service. I just want to do so with a time of silent prayer. Um, if you'd like to come to the front and pray where you're at and pray, you know, one of the things about what we're doing with, with trying to reach specific people in our community, it's about choosing their life, their hope, their relationship with Christ over your own. It's about making a sacrifice in your life, doing something that's maybe out of your comfort because you see a person that you love but who desperately needs to have a relationship with Jesus. That's our first step to choosing their life over our security, to choosing their life over their death. Because, friends, if we don't love them enough to tell them about Christ, we are saying that it's okay with us if they die without ever knowing Christ. That's our first step. With those people that we've, we've picked, those friends that we have, those family members that we have, those people in our community that we know, that we care about enough to put their name on a card and commit ourselves to praying for them and trying to reach them with Christ, that's where we start, with choosing their life. As we spend this time in prayer, would you pray for them? And pray that in your life you would choose the life that, that Christ has offered us over the life that the world says is important, but we know is fading away. Would you stand with me and we'll pray.